something I've learned at Disney is that here we always strive to do more. We always go that extra mile. We always try to make the special difference to the guest experience. We don't just go in and do things and say, okay, it's now done. We just have a culture here that says, what more can we do? How can we do this better? Plus it up. Yes, we've got clean energy going onto the grid. That's wonderful. But how can we make it even better? Let's make it pollinator-friendly habitat so that wildlife can still use that space. And that's just how we think here. It's a wonderful team culture to have. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Penning. Vice President of Animals, Science and Environment for Walt Disney Parks and Resort. Dr. Mark Penning oversees animal care and environmental initiatives at the company's parks and resorts around the world. Leveraging the meaningful field conservation initiatives supported by the company, his team shares inspirational stories and experiences of nature and animals with the theme park and resort guests. His role includes oversight of the company's use of animals in film and television from an animal welfare perspective and ensures the responsible portrayal of animals. Dr. Mark is a veterinarian by training and was born and raised in South Africa. He owned and operated a veterinary hospital and wildlife relocation business at home before joining Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. He specialized in the treatment of birds and reptiles and has done surgical work in the field on lions, elephants, and a host of other species. Dr. Mark previously served as CEO of the South African Association for Marine Biological Research based in Durban, South Africa and has also served as the president of the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums based in Switzerland. Listen in for some great stories about Dr. Mark's adventures and caring for some of the world's most precious animals. He gets to be close up and personal with some of the animals that you and I only get to experience at a zoo or a theme park. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome pleasure of being with Dr. Mark Penning, Vice President of Animal Science and Environment for Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. I had the opportunity to meet him in person when I was in Disney in earlier in the summer of 2022, and it's a complete honor to have him on the show today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you so much, Larry. Great to be here. Yeah, listen, I am fascinated by what you do. So can you tell them a little bit about who Dr. Mark Penning is and how you got to where you are today? That's a fantastic question. And yeah, thanks, Larry. You'll notice I have a a different accent. I'm actually from South Africa, born and raised just near Johannesburg. I um, studied veterinary science 
at a, a wonderful the University of Pretoria. The faculty is a little place called Onderstepoort, and I graduated there and worked most of my veterinary career in Durban, down on the coast, lovely warm climate, actually a lot like Florida, where I am right now. <laughs> so studied vet science, but I felt all along that I really wanted to make a difference in protecting wildlife, protecting wild places, and figuring out how to do that in the biggest, most impactful way possible. And I started off treating individual animal. Pet comes in, it's a patient and it needs a cesarean or it's got tick bite fever, whatever. Then you treat it and you've made a difference for that animal and for that family. But I wanted to have bigger impact. I'm also sure. very curious by nature. I love any kind of wildlife. People started bringing me a tortoise or a snake or a parrot, and I just got absolutely fascinated with the different animals. I ended up specializing in parrots in particular, which led to birds and more birds, and then snakes, mm -hmm. believe it or not. I really developed a passion for snakes. I was able to make that transition from fear real fear to how oh, these guys are really interesting and got to treat some of the most venomous species of snake in the world and loved it, absolutely loved it. Finding ways to help that animal in a safe way so that I don't get bitten, the person helping me doesn't get bitten, and also that the animal is not hurt or stressed out too much in the process. So right. it was great. Here's an example for you. How do you take a radiograph x-rays of a frog who wants to keep jumping off the plate? or a, a lizard or a snake who's going to keep slithering off right. it. Well, you can put a frog or a lizard into a little plastic bag just for that short period of time that you put it on an x-ray plate, you shoot the radiographs. It's dead still because it feels comfortable because it's in something safe. And then you take it out again and you've done your radiographs. Now you can see what's going on. It was kind of that evolution, trying to work out better ways to take care of animals. And so I got into treating wildlife primarily, managed to take on a role as CEO of the Umgeni River Bird Park in Durban. Just the most fantastic collection of parrots, cranes and all sorts of birds. Lots of rare species, loved it. Worked with my dear friend Dave Morgan to develop the Monte Casino Bird Gardens in Johannesburg. Again, free flight bird show, fantastic reptiles. But again, the idea there was giving the best care possible to these animals and sharing them with the public, letting people come in and get inspired. Let kids learn right. that snakes are really cool. Let them <laughs> see birds flying. Bird in a cage is just not an impressive creature. When you see a bird flying, it's fantastic. So show them that. And of course, that then evolved to this wonderful aquarium complex in Durban called Ushaka Marine World. I was very lucky to join the South African Association for Marine Biological Research as the CEO at the time when the city of Durban had asked them to build a new aquarium. And it was at that time the biggest aquarium in the Southern Hemisphere. Had the wonderful privilege of building the aquarium and creating just the most magical experience for the guests. And then at the same time, leading an oceanographic research institute that was helping governments all the way from South Africa up the eastern seaboard of Africa to manage their fish stocks. So we're trying mm -hmm. to help people understand that nature is not just something over there behind a fence. 
a little small protected area behind a fence. No, nature's all around us. And we want to help people earn sustainable livelihoods from the sea, but do it in a responsible way that is sustainable. That means your children and grandchildren could have the same job one day and keep that cycle going. Sure. And so it was wonderful. And then I was approached by Disney and brought over here to Walt Disney World, which has been just the most incredible experience. And I've been in the U.S. for 10 years now. Well, welcome. It sounds like you're making quite an impact, have made an impact, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come. So what is your role at Disney? What does that position entail today? It's just a, an incredible role, actually. It's a dream job in so many ways, Larry. I get to oversee the most incredible animals we have at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And of course, at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge, you know, guests are able to wake up in the morning and see a giraffe right outside their I, window. I've experienced you know. <laughs> that myself. I've stayed there several times, so I can attest to the amazement of that for just sure. Just beautiful. Yeah. So it's taking care of the animals that we have throughout our property. Remember, we have horses that pull carriages through the Magic Kingdom, and we have trail rides at Fort Wilderness. You know, we've um, Walt Disney was a, a big uh, fan of horses and really used to love nature overall, actually. I also oversee the use of animals in film and television. We're helping to transform Hollywood and the way Hollywood uses animals. So in the past, animals were very much just a prop, and they we, we're saying, no, these are living, breathing wonderful creatures that could get really stressed out, could get injured in this filming process. Let's do it differently. And we're trying to encourage Hollywood to not use trained elephants, trained lions, tigers in a green room setting. You can use videogrammetry in a natural setting, even here at Disney's Animal Kingdom, and get everything you need without actually troubling the animal at all. He's just doing what he normally does Amazing. day to day. So we use that technology on the Lion King and production. We oversee animals that are used in film or in television programs to make sure that the content is accurate, but also that it's responsible, that we're not portraying right. animals in a negative way that might have consequences down the line. And then the other piece, very closely with our corporate team to protect wildlife. And the Disney Conservation Fund has directed over $120 million to field conservation programs around the world, which is wonderful. We're very lucky to be able to do that and make such a meaningful contribution to conserving what is out there, wild animals and their habitats. Yeah. And then uh, the last piece of my job is a big one, and that is our environmental targets. You know, the company set a very high environmental goals for 2030. And my job is to make sure that this big section of the company is able to achieve those. And it's a great challenge, but with just the most amazing people and support right from the very top, feeling really good. But it's really in line with your vision, which was making that impact. And you're right there. It sounds like the role today is really where you wanted to be, which was making that global and much larger scale impact. And it seems like you're there now. Very much so. Surrounded by Fantastic. just the most awesome people. And that's how you make a difference, right? Is getting Absolutely. all the right people coming along on the journey. In chatting with you, I came to understand we talked about Gino the gorilla and how fascinating an animal he is and how he's made an impact on your life. I'd love for you to share with our listeners how your time with Gino the gorilla has impacted your parenting as well as how you treat gorillas across the globe, because I know that that has changed to some degree as well. Yeah, you're quite right. 
Gino is a big silverback gorilla. He's a very impressive animal. He has a family group that he cares for in the most beautiful way. He's a massive, powerful animal with these gigantic biceps. <laughs> he's a really right. fearsome creature, and yet he's so gentle with the babies. You know, he'll pick them up and coo at them and play with them, and he would stick the little baby's whole head in his mouth. It's just really fun. We had an incident. One of them spotted a snake that crawled through. So it was a rat snake. You know, they're pretty common in Florida. She gave a startled response. <laughs> You know, and Gino came thundering across to take a look. Now, he was obviously quite nervous of this thing as well, but he very quickly protected the others and pushed right. them away and said, hey, I got this. I can honestly say that watching him makes me feel like I need to be a better dad. He's just <laughs> such an amazing uh, character. And one of the wonderful things that our team does here is to help the animals participate in their wellness. Gino and his family have got offstage, backstage uh, space that they live in, right? They have air-conditioned bedrooms. Think about that. Florida's hot, right? They don't need to be outside all the time. They can choose to come indoors and cool down and whatever they like. And of course, they'll sleep indoors. And when they come indoors, we like to get them right up close to us. Now, again, we're not sharing the same space. There's a safe barrier between us, but there's still really close contact because we want to be able to do things to help that gorilla stay healthy. For example, you want to take a temperature because if you're running a fever, you've got a temperature. So we literally can ask Gino, give us your left ear and he'll give you his left ear and you can take the temperature and you can look okay. in the air to see that there are no issues. Right ear and show us your teeth and he'll open up his mouth and he'll let you brush his teeth. Now, all of this is happening because he's built a relationship of trust with the person who is inter interacting with him and right. the person's feeding him a really special treat. In his case, it's grape. He just loves grapes. And he <laughs> will sit there with the right person as long as you like and, and as long as you're giving him grapes, you can then say, want to give you an injection and he'll either give you his arm and you can poke a finger at it or he'll turn around and show you his butt. You can poke it. And so when the time comes to sedate him or give him an anesthesia because there's a serious procedure that has to happen, he will accept a hand injection, right? So right. It, there's no darting, there's no stressing him, there's no chasing him around, there's no trying to capture and hold. It's a really simple process of, let me give you an injection, here it is, okay, and he goes to sleep. The other piece is that gorillas tend to get cardiac issues as right. they get older, much like humans, right? Yes, we talked about that, right. And what we want to do then is do Doppler ultrasound on that heart so that we know how the heart is functioning. So it's just like you or I, Larry, would do if we went to our doctor and did a treadmill and all of those things that we have to do, right? Well, we can do an ultrasound scan on his heart. We use Doppler. We can see exactly what's going on. And we literally just ask him to, hey, hold your arms up like that. Hold on and let's just do this thing. And he'll stand there quite happily. So, yeah, it's just a wonderful way to make sure that our animals are healthy without stressing them out to learn what it is that we need to know. And it's amazing that something or some creature that is that big and that massive that you could build a relationship with and get that level of trust and not have that fear as a human that something's going to go awry and you don't have the stress on the animal, which is the 
probably the best part of it all, right? Exactly, Larry. And it requires trust at a different level. And if I may, I'll give you another example, one that really sure. moves me every time. We had a gorilla sent to us, a female, her name is Azizi, and she had had offspring before, but wasn't able to rear them she was hand-raised. Again, what happens with gorillas is often gorillas are confiscated from trappers who have killed right. a family to get one baby and they try and sell that baby. I forget her specific circumstances, but she was hand-raised for whatever reason. So she hadn't learned by watching other gorillas what it's like to be a mom. And right. so when she had a baby, she wouldn't hold it properly to nurse. She just really was not a good mom, right? She was sent to us and the request was, maybe you guys can help figure out how to help her be a better mom. Because we don't want to take the baby away and hand rear it as much as that's easy to do. We're going to have the same problem years down the line, right? You're continuing the cycle. Exactly. So we brought her in and it's Gino who's the silverback. So he taught her how to get along with all the others and got her settled down. He liked her a lot. She gave birth during the pregnancy. The trainers worked with her, the carers worked with her every day to help her learn what the good maternal behaviors are. And of course, carrying her in the right position to be able to nurse is one of those. So we gave her a doll. Mm -hmm. And she would carry this doll around. Now, if she's dragging a doll around by one leg, we're not going to reward her for that, right? But when she holds the doll in the right position, then she gets reinforced. She learned how to do it. But to me, the most important one was she learned how to hand over that doll to us and get rewarded for it so that we could do things with the doll and then give it back to her, right? And she learned mm -hmm. that that was okay, so right. when she had her baby, believe it or not, just picture this mom with all these maternal instincts, all the hormones going through her, that process of giving birth, which is inherently stressful. And the first thing she does is pick up her newborn baby and brings it over to her carer and literally hands Amazing. it over to her. Gosh, it just gets me every time. And so what that meant was we were able to clean the baby up, weigh it, check for any deformities or abnormalities. We were able to then start bottle feeding it in addition to her feeding it, right? Which meant it now no longer required 100% of Azizi's attention. We could help. And so every time she would hand it over to us, we could weigh it, check it, feed it, give it back. So baby grew up knowing it's a gorilla with a gorilla family, but with lots of help from us. And in the process, Azizi became a better mom. And you broke that chain of the easy route when just you guys hand feeding and training the baby. And that would have been the easy route, but it would have just caused you another problem down the road if that was a female that gave birth down the line at some point. Exactly right. So lovely success story and such a great example of care for these animals. And Larry, you asked about how that applies to gorillas in the wild. So I want to transition to that and share with you that we recently opened up a brand new center in, in Rwanda. I'm lucky enough to sit on the Dian Fossey Gorilla Fund board and we have just the most amazing organization and raised enough funding to build this beautiful center right outside the Volcanoes National Park in Rwanda. 
beautiful country, amazing people, super friendly, the cleanest country in the whole world, I'm sure. You just have to see it to believe it. It's on my bucket list. It is amazing. And so this new center is basically a space for our team to operate from. This is a team of folks that are out there researching the gorillas. And these are the mountain gorillas, right? The gigantic mountain gorilla, the big shaggy animals that Diane Fossey used to study. And they live around this series of six volcanoes. And as far as I know, three of those are active and three are not. But it's this incredible ring of volcanoes that takes up a space in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Because again, the gorillas don't have passports. They don't see geographic boundaries. Right? <laughs> right. They just want to go. They do their yeah. thing. So yes, we opened up the new center. I'm very proud to say Disney has supported for years and years already. And we actually have a gorilla orphanage in the DRC, believe it or not, in the deepest, wow. darkest Congo, which our own Disney cast went and helped to construct and receive group of young gorillas that had, again, been taken away from poachers. They were confiscated. And and we've grown them up in a family setting so that they all very clearly know their gorillas. They have a very large piece of land that they're able to roam and find food and what have you. But they keep coming back each night to their keepers, their carers, who are local people. It's a local village in the Congo, people that are just passionate about protecting these animals. And we're in the phase now where we're preparing to have them released out into the wild for good, which is just a remarkable story, but again, showing how conservation can be successful when you've got like-minded people who can have the mm -hmm. funding and the know-how to set these things up, but helping local communities to learn, take charge, run, manage, operate, and do the whole thing. It's a wonderful model and something that I'm very proud to be a part of. Yeah, sounds amazing. And like I said, it's on my bucket list. And I think that's actually a great transition to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is my family and I have been fortunate enough. We did caring for the Giants Elephant Tour in Disney. And during that tour, we were told a, an unbelievable story about how research has shown that bees can be used to keep elephants from destroying crops and going back to conservation efforts. I think that's amazing. Can you share how these types of solutions can be used to help save animal populations across the globe. Maybe quickly explain how that process works with the bees sure, and yeah. how that translates to conservation everywhere. Absolutely. So the problem that we were trying to address is that as elephant populations are protected, they grow. As people populations grow, there's a conflict situation that happens there. And elephants are very dangerous, firstly, right? So one has to be super respectful and keep your distance from wild elephants. But at the same time, elephants can be very destructive. So you imagine that you're a farmer, you have a crop that you're growing for your family and for your livelihood, and an elephant comes in and eats everything and it's half of it and tramples the rest right. in one night, right. right? And your whole year's crop is gone, right? You're not going to like elephants. And it doesn't matter right. how hard we work to conserve them, protect them. When they do that, that's never a recipe for success. So there's our problem. How do you figure out how to keep elephants away? 
we've got a team of scientists here. They're working with scientists in the field. And the folks realized that bees are afraid of elephants. Sorry, elephants are afraid of bees. <laughs> you know, the African bee swarms. Right. It's this incredibly uh, fearsome creature when there's a whole swarm of them and they decide to attack something. It's a terrifying thing. It really is. And so elephants are deadly afraid of bees. They get into their eyes and ears. Even though they've got thick skin, they still get hurt by bees. So the team of scientists with help from other folks working in the field figured out how to make a beehive on a fence. So you imagine a strand of wire with it's between two poles. It's got a big box, which is essentially a beehive with a little right. roof over it to protect it from rain. And there's a little tap on it where you can get honey that is obviously a great byproduct of this thing. But what happens now is the elephant comes along and bumps into the fence. And so the hive moves, you know, it swings, which makes the bees agitated so they start buzzing and starting to come out and see what's going on and the elephant says oops i don't like that i'm out of here and he goes I'm right <laughs> Yeah. And so we've established these in conjunction with Save the Elephants organization in Africa, in Kenya, and it's actually worked really well. But you ask yourself now, okay, you build a fence, you put a box in, but the bees have to move in and that doesn't happen overnight. So what do you do in the meantime? Well, one of our scientists has been studying elephant vocalizations and elephants have this very low frequency rumble that we can't even hear. And he figured out by just looking at uh, vocalizations and timestamps on his computer, he managed to figure out there was a specific rumble that one elephant makes to tell another elephant, don't go there, there are bees there, right? How he did this, <laughs> I don't even know, but it's a wonderful finding. So what he was able to right. do is take that clip and put that into a sound device in the box so that it was there to tell elephants don't go there while we're still waiting for the bees to move in, right? And so elephant comes along, bumps into the fence, the trigger puts the, the call out, yeah. and the elephant walks away, which is just incredible. <laughs> I got to say, though, elephants are so darn smart. They figured it out. An elephant would hear it for a day, two or three. Then he'd start saying, hang on a second. You already told me <laughs> that, and this doesn't sound right. And he's asking questions, and it's not getting good answers and he says, ah, there's something wrong here. I think it distracted them long enough. Anyway, but a great application of science to fix a very real problem with a more natural solution. Yeah, and nobody gets injured, nobody gets hurt, and everybody's in a happier spot, And the right? farmer's got honey to add to his crop, right. something to sell, right? It's just a win-win. Yeah, we call that a strategic byproduct of the solution, right? My understanding is two of the four parks are now powered by a solar farm. Why do you feel that efforts like this are so critical for the planet? Larry, that's almost correct. Just technically speaking, we're producing enough solar that we put onto the grid that supplies the park to power two of the parks, right? So it's not as if we kind of built a solar array within each of those two parks. It's just on the outskirts of our property. But yes, that's quite right. We're producing enough power to fully power two of those parks. And remember, they only operate while the sun is shining optimally. So during a thunderstorm you and are at night time. Yeah, exactly. So we need a bit of help from the grid, especially when you go into nighttime. I think it's fair to say that's a very significant contribution 
to the grid that we're very proud of because the world has realized that the shifting of climate patterns is a very real thing and it brings with it very real and very significant challenges. So we know that the way we run our business, we want to do the best we can to protect our planet. We want our business to operate responsibly. And so electrification is something that's quite important, right? So we're looking at how do you electrify the car fleet, the bus fleet? How do we get away from the fossil fuels? But at the same time, you have to be putting clean energy onto the grid so that you can leverage non-fossil fuel burning technology. So we're very proud of our efforts. We're ramping up those efforts. And you can imagine a big solar field is just this gigantic dust bowl of solar panels, potentially, right? So we don't want that to happen. We have them here on Long Island. You you know, right here we have them. So You do, of course. Well, here's the thing. We want to create habitat from those spaces, right? We know that pollinators are like bees and butterflies are super important to the ecology. I mean, we've already talked about how they protect elephants, right? Right. So yeah, we work very hard to create pollinator habitat around and within those solar panel fields, right? And this is such an exciting project for us because we want to know that we're generating clean energy that goes onto the grid, but at the same time provides habitat for wildlife of all shapes and sizes. We know that if you create habitat for insects, the pollinators, then birds follow and other things come in after that. And it's all a chain reaction. Habitat provision is one of those things that we work very hard at. And uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think it's amazing that the way the thought process is that it's not like, hey, we want to solve this problem, which may be putting energy on the grid. We want to solve that problem, but we don't want to do it at the expense of other creatures which I think is just fascinating and the right way to think about it. Precisely. Something I've learned at Disney is that here we always strive to do more. We always go that extra mile. We always try to make the special difference to the guest experience. We don't just go in and do things and say, okay, it's now done. We just have a culture here that says, what more can we do? How can we do this better? Plus it up. And so this is one of those. Yes, we've got clean energy going onto the grid. That's wonderful. But how can we make it even better? Let's make it pollinator-friendly habitat so that wildlife can still use that space. And that's just how we think here. It's a wonderful team culture to have. Agreed. And one of the reasons why my family and I are huge fans, for sure. So one of the things I've learned over the last several years, I'm not sure many people really know this per se, is that zoos and other conservation centers don't necessarily own the animals that they care for, that these animals are rotated in order to keep populations diverse. Now, what do you think people need to understand about the importance of captive breeding programs and species survival plans? Yeah, that's a great question. Larry. I think the easiest way to conceptualize this is for people to recognize there isn't a gorilla store. So let's say here at Disney, we're very lucky to have the gorilla family. We are very lucky to have our silverbacks that live in an all-male silverback group just across the valley. 
if we had just built that space and wanted a family of gorillas, we would never want to go out and get them out of the wild, right? That's just not the right thing to do. So where do they come from? There are around about two and a half thousand entities that license to exhibit wildlife in America. That's a big number. And of course, some of those are really good and some of them are absolutely awful. The industry, the profession, created an accreditation program that is is a peer review program where you have to meet a specific standard in order to get accredited status with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So that's the AZA. And that has filtered out the top 10%, the top, say, 240 of those. Now, those members all work really closely together to counterbalance the fact that there isn't a gorilla store. So we say to all of our members, right, we want to have a healthy population of gorillas around the country so that we can continue to show guests who'll never get the opportunity to go to Rwanda, trek up a volcano and see a gorilla in the wild, have them come in and see gorillas in a great situation, in a great natural family group, doing things that gorillas normally do. So the group has a stud book, and this applies not just to gorillas. This is to, sort of at the moment, like 500 different yeah. species. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the stud bookkeeper and the team will manage the population as one population. So they would let us know, for example, we've got two young males at the moment. As they grow older in a normal setting, they would leave the group. So as you would replicate what they do in the wild, those gorillas go off to another institution. We would get told, hey, Gorilla X needs to go to place Y. We just had a tiger, for example, that went to Hawaii, to Honolulu. Right. And so how do you do that? Well, it is not a financial transaction. We're not in the business of breeding gorillas or tigers to sell to people. We will cover the costs of animals that move. We train them and help them to learn that getting into a crate is a good thing. We give them a safe space that they go into. And by the time the shipment happens, happens, they walk straight into their crate in most cases, they get closed up, they get something that goes along with them to make them feel comfortable and at home. You'll laugh, one of the rhinos that came to us had a bottle of perfume and it happened to be CK <laughs> Obsession. He just loved that perfume. They used to spray that on various things to make him feel, oh, this is my safe place. And so when they sprayed that in his travel crate, he strolled right in. There was no issue. Yeah. And so he came out on the other side and with new animals coming in, we want to look really carefully to make sure there are no parasites, no disease conditions that weren't picked up already, nothing that's going to potentially transfer over to some of the other animals. So when he came into his quarantine space, we had CK obsession sprayed all over the place. <laughs> and so he felt safe. That was his thing. So yeah, the system works very well. It requires the goodwill of all the institutions involved. You have to commit. It's not like a shopping list. Oh, give me five of those and 10 of those. You've got to right. commit. You've got to show that you're in for the long run. You've got to show that you'll participate. And when you can do that, yes, that is the way we would be able to get a gorilla or a tiger or something like that. And it gives everybody the opportunity and it gives them a more natural feeling because 
they're going out on their own to some degree and giving another part of the country an opportunity to see them and continue the species. It is right? exactly. And all committee that's reviewing where those animals go, look very carefully at the well-being of those animals at the final destination. So if your institution is not up to it, you're going to be told that and you're going to know what you have to do to get it there. It requires everybody to take that step up and be able to give better care to those animals, better facilities to those animals. Great stuff. Now, you talked about it earlier, your passion and love for snake. My understanding is, that, and you mentioned it to me when I saw you, was that you have a pretty fascinating private collection of animals. How did that come to be? Yeah, I regret that I don't have them any longer, simply because the transition over to Disney was a big move, and I just didn't want to do that. So I left at home in South Africa. But yes, I had all sorts of animals coming into my house. I just absolutely adore these animals and want to learn more about them and understand them better. And so any, gosh, the local wildlife agency would inform me there were eight gaboon adders that terrible condition. They were confiscated, extremely venomous snake, but the most beautiful animal, really gorgeous patterns all the way down its back, five centimeter long fangs. I mean, incredibly long and very <laughs> dangerous fangs and it's a lethally venomous animal, but it's not an animal that is inherently aggressive. It's not going to chase you around the room and try and do you harm. So I was very happy to bring those home or take them to my office at work and give them the best care that as a veterinarian I possibly could, but learning ways how to handle them without stressing them, how to be able to give an injection knowing you're not going to get bitten, but also without somebody using the tongs and clamping a hold of it and potentially hurting it. So I would use a collection of tubes that I have, clear plastic tubes, and I would just put a tube down and encourage the snake to crawl in through the tube. And it's just the right diameter that he can't turn around and bite, but his head is inside right. the tube. And then I can hold him in the tube at the same time. And I know I'm perfectly safe. I can touch him. I can inject him. I can do various things. If I let him go right up to the front of it, I can even have access potentially to his mouth to see that he doesn't have infections in there. I can put a tube in and give him water and nutrients and medications that way. So yeah, it's just one of those things that I loved doing with whatever kind of animal. You just became known as the guy who would take care of the animals that other people were afraid yeah, of, it sounds that like. that really did happen, yes. And so I had a king cobra named Elvis. The king cobra is one of the most fantastic creatures in the entire world. It's this gigantic snake that can rear up to kind of half my height. It's super impressive. It's extremely venomous, very dangerous. They occur in India and Southeast Asia, and I've been out there looking for them. One of the things I desperately wanted to do is go and see them in the wild. And I did. I got two of them that we found that were being studied by a team of biologists and uh, they had trackers implanted and we were able to go and physically get a hold of them, which is just wonderful stuff. But Elvis had the most amazing character. Just he has sadly passed on now. I had him for many years and picture this enormous creature who has a sense of humor. 
people would not associate a sense of humor with a snake, right? And Elvis used to have this big space that he commanded. That was his domain. And we had to go in and make sure that he's okay. Clean up, clean the windows because he was on public display. So you want him to look pretty and everything look nice. Also, it's got to be an environment that he feels good about. We want to set him up for success in there. But when you go in, he knows, he reads body language. He smells pheromones and all sorts of things. And he just knows when somebody's terrified of him. And believe me, it's very easy <laughs> to be terrified of him. So you would go in there and I would go in and he'd be totally relaxed. I could do anything in there and nothing happens. But somebody newer, younger would go in there and he would look up at them and he would wait. He would allow the person to come in, move a little closer, start working. But as soon as they got to a point where they were kind of really occupied with what was going on and thinking it was going well, he would suddenly leap up and charge over <laughs> towards them. And you can't help getting a real fright in a situation like that. So buckets would go flying and keys would drop and all sorts of things. And they'd scramble out and close the door. And you could almost see Elvis smiling. He was saying, gotcha. You know, that was really funny. So again, to try and not have that kind of situation happen, we had to train him to go into a box and then be in the box slide the box closed, lock it, and then there's no way he can come out and interfere with people. And then that, just from a safety perspective, we needed to do that. But boy, Elvis was just the most wonderful creature. I learned a lot from him too. Sounds like a heck of a snake. So we love tangible takeaways here on the Midland Money Mindset. And I want your opinion or your advice and guidance for those who are listening, things that they can do, very easy things that people can do to protect nature and wildlife. Yes. You know, the average people, not folks who are working out in the Congo, people here, just regular folks. What are the things, some things we can do? Larry, great question, because conservation is not about what's happening in the Congo. That's right. such a great point. Conservation is what you do with your backyard, right? That's where it starts. And so I encourage folks that are listening and that are really interested in nature and want to see nature thrive around them, create habitat in your garden. And honestly, it starts with something really simple like butterflies. Find out what butterflies you've got in your area, what plants they need to do well, and plant the heck out of them. There are some very simple ways to do that. Some plants that butterflies and hummingbirds and other creatures, bees, just love. So plant those up and you will see those start coming in. Throw away your pesticides, right? Nobody wants fire ants, let's be honest, okay? So there are some <laughs> things that are very specific to go and take out colonies of ants where you don't want them. That's okay. But don't just use pesticides all over the show. Let the insect population thrive. And then you'll see the birds coming in and other creatures come. It's just wonderful. So treat conservation as though it's your backyard and you want to make it a place that's healthy for wildlife to exist. And then also, there are so many ways to learn. There are amazing ways to watch Disney film or a Nat Geo production that teaches you about animals and gets you out to go and see them. But don't forget about your local zoo or aquarium. Find out if they're AZA members. If they are, go and take a look and ask them what they're doing to protect wildlife in their backyard and around the world. And I think you will be very surprised to learn how big a role those zoos and aquariums play in protecting wildlife across the globe. Just go and ask the questions and I think you'll have a newfound respect for those folks and the work that they do. 
Yeah, that's great stuff. I know, listen, in my backyard, being I'm on Long Island, the closest location for us is the Bronx Zoo, which is one of the more well-known. And I believe they're in that genre of the AZA that you're speaking of. They do a lot of great stuff there. Actually, we were just talking about it the other day because we didn't make it there this year, but we were talking about maybe next spring or in the fall even making a trip out there because it's been a little while. Yeah, fantastic. That's the Wildlife Conservation Society. That's the old New York Zoo. Zoological Society. It's an exceptional conservation organization that is really top-notch. I mean, as good as it gets. Yeah, I will say it's tough going to zoos to my family and I took our trip to your country, South Africa, because it's a lot different when you're seeing them in their habitat versus in that environment. But it's amazing. Absolutely. And South Africa is beautiful, isn't it? It's an incredible country. We're just very lucky that we're able to visit a country like South Africa. And so many folks here just simply aren't. And so we want to help them to learn not just about the animals, but about the people and about the culture. And the problems, the challenges that they face and how they overcome them. And there's a remarkable resourcefulness and resilience in places like South Africa that we'd love our guests here to see and to learn from. And I think that just makes all of us better, doesn't it? Whenever we're able to look at other people, other places and see what they do and how we learn from each other, we share best practices and we all come out better as a result. Can't agree with you more, Dr. Mark. So listen, it's been a pleasure having you on our show. And we end every show by asking each of our guests the same question, because this is the Midland Money Mindset, and we love joy on this show. So what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? I drove into work this morning and I drove past a big tree farm, which is here so that we can grow the natural diet of animals that eat from trees, like giraffes, like elephants, like black rhinos. And I saw our team in this blistering, sweltering Florida heat, very diligently out there cutting away pieces from these trees that I know are going to go out to our giraffes, our elephants, etc., and give them the kind of nutrition and the kind of things that they would normally do out in the wild and make sure that they have a happy and joyful day. And that is exactly what I want to see. I want our guests to see it and get inspired by it and to go home and think about protecting wildlife in their own backyards. Love it, Dr. Mark. Listen, we're going to have all of your information in the show notes, but if people want to learn more about you and what you're doing, what's the easiest place for them to do that and find you? Well, I have an Instagram handle that folks are welcome to join up on. I've got some fantastic information about what our team does. If you like the gorilla stories with Gino and things like that, there's just so much there. And that's at Dr. Mark at Disney. It's the at and then Dr. Mark at AT Disney and you'll find me there. So please take a look. And then we've got the parks blog is always full of amazing information for the folks that are really Disney fans. Please take a look at that. There's just so much to learn from all of the parks, not just our amazing animal kingdom. Agreed. Agreed. Well, listen, thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the show and make it a great day. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Mark Penning for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Dr. Mark Penning truly has a passion for what he does. You can tell that he has such admiration for all creatures and believes they all need to be cared for and helped. Caring for the animals is one thing, and the other is to help these animals survive 
through conservation efforts to ensure enjoyment for generations to come. Dr. Mark and his adventures can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.